On today's Truth Factor discussion, we're going to be jumping right into Romans chapter 3 and our ongoing study through the book of Romans. We'd like to thank you for taking time to join us for our study today. Hopefully, everything we will look at will be in accordance to what the Word of God has to say, and hopefully we'll have a proper and right understanding of the Apostle Paul's uh, epistle to the saints there in Rome. Paul, if you would let everyone know how they can participate in today's study. We'd be glad to do that, John, as we... uh like for you to interact with us. Maybe as you're listening uh, either live or later on, you have a question, you can send that to questions at truthfactor.com or truthfactorlive.com. If you're looking at social media, maybe you're watching this on YouTube or uh, you're looking for it on Facebook or even Twitter, uh, you might look at truthfactorlive.com or actually look for the, uh, the description, Truth Factor Live. And I think you'll find this pretty easily. Uh, and each of those has a, a chat feature in which you can engage with us. We look forward to your comments and questions. Uh, if you are in one of those social media formats, please uh, subscribe to us and, and click the bell for the reminder uh, whenever we go live. And that way you'll always know when Truth Factor is on the air. John? Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that information. For those who are keeping track, today's episode is number 286. Number 286. So, Brian, I believe that you were down to host the study this morning. So we will turn this over to you, and you can get us rolling. Thank you very much. So today we're in Romans chapter 3. And Romans chapter 3 is kind of a complicated chapter. As many would say, uh, the book of Romans itself is a kind of a complicated book. Um, it's not necessarily that complicated, more so, though, that we kind of have to understand the case that Paul is building, the idea of why being justified by faith is so important. So a few things we're going to do today is we're going to talk about or define a couple of the words we're going to be talking about that are real important here. Righteousness, justification, propitiation. Uh, we're going to throw some of these words out to some of our uh, panelists to help us to understand these ideas better. Going to be looking at some Old Testament quotes here and thinking about how Paul uses the Old Testament in order to establish that the concept of justification by faith has been there all along. We're going to start off by reading Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and I'm going to ask Tom, if he would, to read for us Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. All right, so we read here, what advantage this then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man alike, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? They speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do good, or let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So we're going to throw a chat room question out there uh, to kind of get our chat room thinking about some things. And the question is this, 
What are some examples of messages to Gentiles from God in the Old Testament? Uh, one of the things we're about to talk about is how God uh, communicated with the Jews was different. So in the Old Testament, do we have information about some of the messages that God sent to the Gentiles? So we've thrown that up in our chat room at this time. And uh, if you can think about that while we're talking, we'd appreciate that. So we're going to start off and I'm going to throw this question to Shelton because uh, he and I were talking about this one earlier. And the first thing to ask about is there's this interesting statement now in, in the beginning of the chapter about the, the oracles of God. Shelton, tell us a little bit about this. What, what are the oracles of God? Why are they advantageous to the Jews? What's, what's the idea here, you think? Well, I mean, if we look at what the word oracles literally translates as, it means an utterance, or sometimes a brief utterance is what they uh, would like to say an oracle would have been. But in this case, if we look at the context, the oracles of God that would have been given to the Jews would have been the law, uh, would, would have been the words um, or utterances of God through the law of Moses, through the prophets, and of course, through the Psalms. If we look at what Jesus has to say in Luke chapter 24, and in verse 44, he makes the point clear, and I think this is where we get the advantage that the Jews had, one of the advantages of receiving these oracles from God, the, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, is because Jesus says, these were the things that spoke concerning me, uh, that I was coming. The Jews had everything from God to point to the Messiah that was to come and to prepare them uh, to recognize Jesus Christ as that Messiah. And I think that was the advantage that they had over the Gentiles, maybe should have been able to realize this a lot more than the Gentiles would have been able to. But there was also an advantage, and I think verse 1 of this chapter brings it up as well, uh, when Paul asked, what is the profit of circumcision for the Jew if we didn't have that advantage? Uh, and his point is that that circumcision being the sign of the covenant between God and the Jews, that they were his people, uh, and that they had that covenant with them. And we know the Gentiles did not have this covenant through the old law with God. They were not his people. They were separate from him. And I won't step too much on the chat room, but we know that they were spoken to uh, by God in various ways, but it was it was different. Uh, the Jews were God's people. They were the one that was under this covenant and, and ultimately had the words that led to recognizing the Messiah. So yeah, the advantage uh, would have definitely been on the Jews' side there. So uh, Shelton, that's a great answer. Um, what, what would you say then that the Gentiles had? Uh, did they have anything at all? Yeah, uh, I mean, they had they had words that were written, uh, like we talked about before the study by Jonah and, and by various others that that God spoke to the Gentiles through those and even words, messages written to the Gentiles. Uh, but, you know, as you mentioned before the study began, those were still things that the Jews would have had possession of. Uh, if they were words of God, uh, they were technically the Jews possessions, uh, even though they were written to the Gentiles. So it probably would have been hard to even get access to those messages. Uh, and so really we don't see the Gentiles coming into being part of a covenant of God and, and God's people until this new law is coming. And, th and this is what Paul's explaining in the first three chapters of Romans, um, you know, that the Jews were having this mindset that they were the people of God, but under this new covenant, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And this new message through faith in Christ Jesus, this salvation is for everyone who believes is what you know, we read in Romans chapter one, uh, there in verse 16, that all have, you know, it's for everyone who believes Jew first and also for the Greek. So that's a, that's a fantastic answer, Shelton. Um, 
one thing we might consider too, maybe I'll throw this out to the panel to think about. I didn't write this question down, but just to think about it. In the end, God is almost seems to say that the Jews are better off to have more rules and a more rigid system than the Gentiles. Does that sound true? What do you guys think? In other words, the Jews had more laws and rules than the Gentiles did. And, and Paul says that's a better thing. And that even includes circumcision. Is that true? Like, maybe that's an easy question. Yes and no. Yeah. You know, yes, because God says it's true. Uh, yeah. No. Why no, John? You're, I, I would agree with you, but why? Well, I, I come back to what Paul wrote in his letter to the church, churches throughout Galatia. The law was given to them, was given to Israel because of their transgressions. And so a lot of the reasons, I think, a lot of the elements of the laws were intended to keep Israel out of the behavior patterns of the Canaanites, to keep them separate from the world. Um, and so there were a lot of literal thou shalt not do. Um, you know, don't touch certain things, uh, dead animals, and if you do, you got to do this and that. Whereas with the Gentiles, if we're, if we're, if we are assuming Gentiles that were not bound by the law of Moses, you think about Moses' father-in-law, um, Jethro. Jethro in the land of Midian. Um, he seemed to be a believer in God. I would think that their life would be a little bit easier. I don't know. I don't know. That's Maybe I spoke too you know, soon. Well, one thing I always say is that if I imagine it like this. If, if somebody I... Uh, asked me to come do a job for him. They said, hey, Brian, I need you to dig a trench in the backyard. And uh, they gave two sets of instructions. One of them was just dig a trench. The other one was dig it down six feet and three feet wide and make it 30 feet long. Mm -hmm. That what really matters is whether or not I want to do the job as to whether or not I'm, I want specific or generic directions. If I'm not really too anxious to do it, then I want those directions to be as generic as I can so I can do as little work as I have to to feel accomplished. Yeah. But if I really want to please that person, if I have a great desire to, to make them satisfied, if it's somebody important to me, I want to know specifically and exactly how they want it so I can do it to their satisfaction. And so sometimes I can't help but to think that perhaps the law's benefit is only for those who want to seek after God. And that in some ways, the law might be something that distinguishes between the heart that seeks God and the heart that does not seek God. Because someone who does not seek God doesn't want to be bound to something specific. But somebody who seeks God, who wants to please God, wants to do things in a way that pleases God. So See, I would think I, you I would were talking about that, the I think you were talking about the new covenant just now. Yeah. Well, and I and I think it, that it, it can fit exactly to that. Yeah. I think in fact more so than the old covenant. Yeah. But even yeah. the old covenant had the element that somebody who yeah. loved God could find exactly what God wanted and could give it to them. See, Brian, I've heard through the years people would say, well, the old law was more physical and the new law of Christ was more spiritual. And I disagree with that. The people under the Old Testament, they had to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, the only difference is someone was born, when they were born into this world, they were born under the law. And they had to learn about the law and come to love God and know God or the other way around. Christians are born into the body of Christ because they have learned about God and have that love there to obey his commands. And what you're saying, John, is actually the prophecy of Jeremiah 31, right? Yes. Where he says, no longer would you have to teach people about God. If you're in the covenant, you know. That's so that's, exactly a, right. that's a great point. I mean, to go on to this subject too long, let me kind of jump ahead now. 
Uh, John, while I've got you here, Paul, Paul seems to be making two cases here, two rebuttals. The first one is that the disobedience of the Jews makes it seem like God doesn't keep his promises, and the unrighteousness of the Jews makes God seem unfair to punishment. Uh, what do you think about those cases? Let me just kind of have you, uh, um, let me kind of say it like this. If, if no one can remain faithful, God can't in fairness expect us to be faithful. Uh, if, if somebody made that case, in other words, if they said, hey, nobody can pass this test, so clearly the test must be too hard. How does Jesus Christ himself render that argument null and void? Um, I'll make sure I'm digesting it properly. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a wordy question, unfortunately. Um, Other than the fact that he sent Jesus to live in the flesh, and he was tempted and always like as we are, yet without sin, the Hebrew writer even says that he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Um, that's why, I don't know, is, is that kind of what you're thinking about? Yeah, so so I would suggest that if Jesus could live under the law, that he was born of a woman, born under the law, and as you point out, uh, that he uh, lived and tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, if he's able to successfully navigate that, he becomes the proof that the test isn't flawed. That in other words, it's kind of like uh, if everybody fails the test, but but Jesus came and he took the test and he passed it, he becomes evidence himself that the test wasn't the flaw. And that statement alone opened up a huge debate in the late 80s and early 90s that we won't go That's into true. right now. <laughs> about Yeah, that's something I didn't, I don't want to go into, but I know exactly what you're talking about. How uh, how was Jesus able to do that? And we'll just, we'll leave it as, as you said, well, Jesus was born in the flesh. Jesus, you know, Romans 8 will make a big case about the importance of that. And uh, we'll, we'll let whoever's handling Romans 8 deal with that debate, I think, that perfect <laughs> idea. Um, let me jump over to Paul a second. Paul. Uh, there's kind of an interesting statement in 8 of verse 8. They say, Paul says that some people are saying that he teaches, let us do evil that good may come. Uh, why do you think people would say that? What what would bring them to that conclusion? Well, Paul talks about his life a little bit there. I kind of wonder if maybe what uh, he's indicating there is that uh, that the more we sin, the more forgiveness there is. Uh, kind of like another statement Paul will make uh, that we'll study about. It talks about uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, uh, and so uh, I'm. That's kind of in my reading of it. That let us do evil that good may come. That uh, as we are more evil for God to forgive us, it shows how much more good He is. Uh, certainly, Paul says that he's. This is slanderously reported, and he says those who would uh, say that he taught such things that they uh, stand condemned, and that that is a, a just condemnation. It makes me wonder, Paul, if in Romans 6, here in a few chapters, when you quoted the verse there a second ago, uh, when he brings this up again, if he is simply making the point to be clear that there's no question about this, or if, or if again, he's suggesting that the things he described in verse 5, God's great mercy, uh, again, trying to rebuttal the idea that it implies that, that our sin is, is inconsequential at that point. So I think it's very interesting you brought up Romans 6, uh, that we're coming back to this idea. Um, at this point, let's go ahead and jump back to the chat room and uh, see. It looks like in our YouTube chat, we might have an answer there. And I'll let John bring that up. Let's see. We're looking for Gregor's first comment. 
So right. one of Gregor's comments were removed. So Gregor's comment that we're looking for, uh, um, yeah, that one there. Okay. Uh, so I have it down as Jonah tradition. Job knew what to do. The natural laws, meaning the uh, things were better for those who acted as God wanted. A tyrant is eventually punished. A kinder, noble person was generally blessed. Um, uh, Gregory gave answers that I wanted to hear. Uh, we have some examples of some prophets that went to the uh, to the Jews. You mentioned Jonah. Um, we have a number of times where prophets, even Daniel, talked to Gentiles, Obadiah. So we have that. You also put down tradition, and we would say that some of their law was tradition. Uh, you pointed out Job, that God spoke to Job. And Elihu, Job's friend, says that God spoke to people through dreams and through pain and things like that. And then finally, you made the point to say there was the sense of natural law that we talked about back in Romans 1. So you gave a lot of great answers there, uh, Gregor. And, and we want to understand that the Gentiles weren't without the knowledge of God. And you gave us some great examples of that evidence from the Old Testament. Um, let's continue on if we if we can then. And I'm going to ask Shelton, if he would, to read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. No problem, Brian. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. It says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison uh, of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Excellent. Thank you very much, Sheldon. And uh, what we're going to do now is throw our chat question up there. And so if you're in our chat room, if you can take a look at that question for us. Our question is, are there exceptions to the statement, there are none righteous? That's the uh, passage that's quoted here in verse 10. Uh, is that is that statement have any exceptions to that rule? Uh, maybe you can think of something that you might fill that thought in with. So we're looking for some chat questions on that. Um. So let's go ahead and, and uh, step through, and maybe I'll throw some questions around to some of our uh, some of our people here. First of all, there's a lot of words in this passage that we kind of want to define, and I'm going to ask Tom. Tom, uh, if somebody asked you what is righteousness, um, and like I said, I think a lot of times people already have an answer in their mind, but but if you want to give a biblical answer, what is righteousness, Tom? How would you answer that? Simply stated, righteousness is being right with God. I, I mean, it, it, it's really that simple. However, uh, we need to understand that associated with the idea of righteousness in Scripture is action. That is, doing what you need to do. And, and uh, we kind of need to understand that because righteousness, it is one of those challenging things. And this, this very book, it deals with the righteousness of God and it deals with our righteousness uh, 
being righteous with God and then righteousness in other ways. So, so, but, but, but simply stated, uh, you're right with God. And, and what it means is you do what God tells you to do. And that's why you're right with God. Tom, that's a great answer. And what's important about your answer there is that a lot of people have a sense of self-righteousness. Uh, and that, you know, that term comes up a lot in the Bible too. And your answer actually kind of made it clear why self-righteousness is not righteousness. Um, and I, and I really appreciate that, uh, your thought kind of brought us to that. Um, let me jump back to my question here. Shelton, I'm going to throw this next one to you. Uh, we're quoting Psalms 14 verses one through three here. Paul uh, begins at verse 10 and he's quoting Psalm 14, one through three. Um, in Psalm 14, one through three, this kind of makes you have to jump back and look at the passage there who this is kind of a tough question you know i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a lot of latitude however you want to answer this because i'm asking you to get in paul's mind for a second when paul quotes that passage who was the one in psalm 14 that was not righteous well uh if you go you do have to go back to psalm 14 uh and i think anytime we see any of the apostles in their epistles or or jesus himself quote scripture always go back uh, read that, read that scripture, uh, and, and it'll help you to understand it better. Now, if you're one who trusts inspiration, uh, you know that Paul did not use this out of context. So we need to right. figure out why he used it. If you don't trust inspiration, this might help you trust inspiration, uh, because you'll go back and find that, yes, he did use that correctly. Uh, and of course, this is a Psalm of David, and it talks about how uh, you know, we see the folly of, of those who are without God, the godless, and, and we see God's triumph over them in the end uh, in this psalm. And when he starts out, David says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So immediately we know he's talking about the fool, uh, whoever whoever that might be. That's a foolish person who has said there's no God. And it goes on to describe the list of, of, of this foolish uh, list of things, characteristics of this foolish person there. Um, you know, they, they've turned aside, uh, become corrupt, and uh, they are workers of iniquity with no knowledge of God. Uh, and uh, it says that they are in fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. And then if we look down at verse 7, he says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So these are the people who have taken uh, captive uh, the people of God, the Israelites, uh, they are their captors and they are those without God. They are foolish. Uh, they don't trust God and they don't seek God. And Paul uses this, you know, here in Romans chapter three. And I think he uses it correctly uh, because what we're talking about is those who are Jews. They are the people of God, but yet they're not uh, they're not following what what God is saying. And they're not looking to his word. They're not seeing uh, what they need to see out of it. And, and you know, he kind of uses this, I think, to make it um, make it a little more serious, uh, you know, to them, to, to get them to understand you need to be listening to what the Word of God has to say. You are just like these fools who took your ancestors captive years ago. It is a fantastic passage. I really like the way you took that captivity statement. I think that was a excellent application. Shelton, I would have accepted that, or I would have accepted it. It would have been okay <laughs> if you just said, obviously, it's in, you know, not out of context because Paul said it. So uh, that would have been great. But actually, you gave a, an answer that was a really uh, a really good thought there. And I well, and you know, a lot of people that. a lot of people are not going to accept us just saying 
Paul said it, you know. Yeah, so, no, he didn't use it out of contest. We we accept that because we have faith in the inspired word of God. But um, I think those types of things can actually help people understand when they see something that was written hundreds and hundreds of years before. And then now we see Paul using it now in context. You know, they see that these men uh, weren't wrong in what they said. There wasn't falsehood in, in what they're teaching. That's, that's a great answer, Shelton. Um, and uh, I hope everybody appreciated that uh, the thought about the, those who take in captivity, a very term that Paul uses many times about those who uh, who were the Judaizing teachers. So it's a great question. Um, so, John, there's kind of an interesting statement here as he goes on to talk about the law in verse 19. He says, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under law. What um, what is the significance of that statement say for us and the covenant of Christ? Uh why is that important for us to understand for the things that are said by Christ? Well, I think there is, there there has been for a, a long time now. And when we were in Jonesboro, there was an individual, not in Jonesboro, but neighbor congregation, who disputed whether or not the covenant of Christ could be considered a law. Because in most like instances, such as what we're looking at here in the text, he would go to that and make the point that... Um, that we're not under the law, and therefore there's not a law of Christ. But in this case of point, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that'd be the Jews, without a doubt, okay? That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Now the question is, therefore by his deeds in the law, no flesh will be justified in sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Um, so what's your question? Uh, so uh, maybe maybe to say uh, how what kind of relevance would you take that as far as if that's a general truth about law whatever said is about the judgment of God or not justifying the judgment of God he's talking directly about the the rightness of God to be the judge because God's going to hold all men accountable okay without a law there's not accountability Romans chapter seven Paul kind of talks a little bit about that in a form and a fashion um, but if there's accountability there must be a law. And he holds both the Jews and the Gentiles accountable. Now, for us today, we are under a law that holds us accountable unto Jesus Christ. We're going to be judged by his words. and um, But it's not the law of Moses. It's not the law of sin and death. It is the law of Christ and what he has established through his new covenant. Uh, John, that, that really was kind of the idea I'm looking for. We might even say that if Jesus is destined to judge the whole world uh, mm -hmm. and judgment begins with the household of faith, what does that imply about the law of Christ? It is that by which we will all be judged. Yeah, that in everybody ju is judged by that. That's right. So that, in other words, there's not a separate law for Jews or mm -hmm. a separate law for the unbelieving, that if we're all judged by Christ, law is spoken mm -hmm. to those who are under it, and therefore we're all under the law of Christ. Yeah. Uh, John, I, I, that, that's exactly what I was kind of leaning towards in that okay. point. Uh, sometimes you guys have to read my mind in order to uh, to get along with this. Well, let me just kind of throw out a generic question to anyone who wants to kind of answer this. So in verse 19, it's kind of interesting. Uh, it says that the law is spoken to those who are under law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world, and this is the New King James Version, may become guilty before God. So let me ask you guys, does God want the world to be guilty? He wants the world to understand that they are guilty not that he wants it to 
not that he wants us to be guilty. God wants us to be innocent. God, matter of fact, God wants to eat, take our guilt and deal with it. Uh, he desires all men everywhere to be saved. Paul told Timothy, uh, he doesn't desire that any perish. So, so uh, that's the fact to understand in that. But the point is, is when you've got a law, a law shuts down people who don't want to follow it. I mean, when the law's there, do what it says and uh, you're going to be okay. But, but the fact is, is there are so many people that, and, and this is the problem with, with, with the faith-only doctrine, rejecting any idea whatsoever of law. You know, I, I can't help but think that we have people that accuse us, and, and I hesitate to use that terminology, but, but as members of the Lord's Church, because we teach uh, obedient faith and so on, and we're sometimes accused of teaching salvation by works. And, and and quite often it's either it, there's either a little bit of ignorance in what they're saying or else there's some dishonesty, you know, uh, be, because we're not saying that we earn anything. That's exactly what the Jews were doing. But you got to do what God says. And, and, and uh, wherever there's a law, uh, whoever that law applies to, uh, you know what? If you do what it says, you're fine. Every mouth will be stopped. Uh, by listening to what the law says. That's that's a that's a great point. Uh, we might, you know, Tom. In a, one way I think of it too is the idea that if if God's desire or God's purpose is that all may become guilty, that perhaps what we're really trying to understand is that that guilt may be known not by God who knows our guilt, but by us. So there's that sense of that. Yeah. Um, let me jump over to Paul real quick. Paul, one of the ideas that's being brought up here, verse 20 is a summary statement in a way. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So, so Paul, I'm going to throw you a hard one. What is justification that is such a big idea in the book of Romans? Well, this idea of justification, certainly uh, we look at maybe the root word of it, and it's just uh, to be uh, found to be innocent, uh, to be just in, in the things that are done. I did a quick search when I looked at that question, and uh, it's here it says that by the deeds of the law we cannot be justified, but there are ways in which we can be justified. Uh, I looked that we're justified by faith. Um, we are justified by works. Uh, it speaks of Abraham being justified by works, and not works of the law, but but by his faith working. Uh, we're justified by grace, and the scripture also says we're justified by Christ. Now, what I found was an interesting statement in First Corinthians chapter sixteen that I think um, is a, an, an important uh, verse here uh, to consider that. You know, that's the passage where uh, Paul is writing that uh, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and then he goes through a long list of things that <clears throat> uh, would make us unrighteous. And he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. So these people who were guilty of sin uh, can then stand just <clears throat> and forgiven before God. Uh, that's, a, that's a fantastic answer. Um, and I hope, uh, I hope uh, we, we got a lot of people who are following that because it really is a uh, important point for us to understand. You really kind of took us a couple of directions there that, that for the sake of time, we won't go into, but uh, that really was a, a great point. I think at this point, let's go back to our chat room question. I don't see any answers to that. Uh, uh, if I'm looking around, it looks like we don't have that. 
But are there any exceptions to the statement there are none righteous? What do you guys want to throw out there? Yes. And yeah, yes and no. Yeah, there, there, we could think of some exceptions. Uh, um, like, for example. Jesus is the most obvious one. Jesus is an obvious one. Yeah. If we define righteous as, as being right before God, are there some yeah. without sin? Well, yeah, and and again, uh, when you say you can define it in different ways, you know, I ask the question: Are you talking about right now, or are are you talking about the life as a whole? I, I think obviously the overall point Paul has is over a completed life, there is none righteous. You know, I mean, uh, you're you're going to sin if you live long enough, and of course that leads up to the debate: Well, what about babies, uh, and what about uh, toddlers? But you know, even as I was thinking about that. I'm not sure that you could apply that statement to them from the standpoint of their being righteous by their what they do and don't do because they don't understand. Okay. You know, the, the whole concept of righteousness, you know, when you talk, and I just preached this past Sunday on Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. You know, the, the idea there is you, you crave to be right with God. You got to understand what it means to be right with God. A baby, my baby can't do that. So is a baby righteous? Yes and no. You know, uh, you know, uh, what do you mean by righteous? You know, doing things. So I think we have to factor all that in as we look at this. Jesus is the only example of someone who lived to any appreciable age who we could say was without sin. So was purely righteous from that standpoint. But we can be forgiven and we can be righteous. Very good. Another, the other example is to say those who are in Christ are righteous. Um, you know, that's an important point, too. Yeah, right. as they are walking in the light. Go ahead. Go ahead, John. Right. I think it is important that we keep in mind here, and this is why you asked the question. Paul's argument up to this point is establishing a commonality between the Jews and the Gentiles, leading up to the need for the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary and that equality that all are subject to that death and deserving of that death. Or, sorry, they need his death so that they could be, as he'll cover later on in the chapter here, be righteous. So so this text, well, Paul, is there none righteous in the context? No, of the Jews and the Gentiles. But taking the statement itself, is there any that are righteous? Well, as Paul, as Tom was saying, and as we'll see later, absolutely. But it's but again, it's not due to our own actions. Of course, it's because of Jesus Christ, God, and our faith in Him. Sorry, go ahead. Very good, John. Um, let's go ahead and uh, finish up our chapter reading, and I'm going to ask Paul if he would to finish us off verses 21 through 31, Romans chapter 3, 21 through 31. Be happy to do that. Uh, beginning at verse 21 of Galatians 3, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, for kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. I'm reading the wrong verse, aren't I? You're reading the wrong book. 
<laughs> no wonder I couldn't find it. I'm looking at. I'm waiting for him to catch up with me, or vice versa. Yeah, you're in Galatians three. You're in Galatians three. I'm terribly sorry. Uh, although it went along very well. Yeah, it did go, it did go nicely with it, didn't it? Yeah. I think I had switched over there to compare uh, some of Romans three with this. So I'll start again. Romans Romans three verse twenty one, and I apologize for my goof there. The scripture here says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be, uh, excuse me, whom God set forth as a propitiation for by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus where is boasting then it is excluded by what law of works no but by the law of faith <clears throat> Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So we put a chat question up there, if our uh, chat group can take a look at this. Uh, the question is this, why was the law necessary if God did not desire for men to be made uh, righteous or to be justified by it? What what then is the purpose of the law if God's, or specifically even the law of Moses, but what, what was the purpose then that God would give it if it wasn't going to make men righteous? Uh, so, you know, I was looking at this uh, statement and I was wondering about something that said, Whenever it talks in verse 21 and 22, when it says the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. And then verse 22, he says, even uh, talking about being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. And one of the things I wasn't sure about, and I wanted to ask, and I think I'm going to throw this to Tom, if Tom's ready to go. Um, what, what exactly are we talking about here? Is the righteousness of God, the term that's used there, is that talking about God's righteousness or the righteousness that God wants us to have. Which one do you think He means there, Tom? Uh, yes, I, uh, I uh, ultimately in the text he's he's talking about God's righteousness, as in God the Father, the righteousness that He has, because that's where our righteousness is going to stem from, or or must stem from, because it's very possible to have a a, a it, it, as you further ask, is there a righteousness that is not from God? The answer is absolutely. Paul's going to deal with that. We get around Romans 10, and he talks about the righteousness of the Jews. Uh, they seek to establish their own. So ultimately, the point is, we need the righteousness of God. And the thing is, is that's something that's not alterable. Uh, you know, that's something that if, if uh, we can't control that, uh, uh, we can control our righteousness from the standpoint of the way that we act and whether or not we're willing to do the right thing or so on. And 
And that comes when we have faith the way that we ought to, which is the point of verse number 22. But ultimately, it starts with the fact that God is righteous and he has revealed that righteousness to us. And there's our hope. That's a great answer, Tom. Thanks uh, Thanks for giving us that thought. Um, John, let me ask you a question now. In the same passage, he talked about that righteousness of God, and he said that that righteousness of God was witnessed by the law and the prophets. So how, if, if the law, if righteousness is separate from the law, how then is the law witness to that righteousness? Well, that's a good question. Um, it says that the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Um, one of the things we might consider when we talk about this particular passage and the answer here is ultimately what was God's plan for the salvation of man. And the fact that he specifies prophets here, in my opinion, is a strong indication that he's looking forward to the time of the coming of the Messiah. The righteousness of God, he forbeared with the people. I mean, he did punish them, but he didn't completely wipe them out. Um, Northern nation of Assyria, he did release. He, he he sent away. The southern nation of Judah, he did bring back from Babylonian captivity. Um, but that righteousness of God, I think, is really seen in how he dealt with the people through the prophets and ultimately the foretelling of the coming of Christ, which then brings into verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, he doesn't mention Abraham, and I'm kind of surprised that he's focusing on the law and the prophets. But I think the same thing could be said going all the way back to Abraham and his promise there. I actually think that's why why chapter four here in just a few verses, we actually launch into Abraham. Uh, and that was exactly what I was thinking too, John. Yeah, and if you were reading <laughs> in Galatians, where I decided <laughs> to read from a few moments ago, uh, he says, Paul makes the great point there that we are children of Abraham when we walk by faith. And the Jews would have uh, found that outrageous to think that Gentiles were children of Abraham. But he says, when we walk by faith, we are those children of Abraham. And Abraham was justified before the law was in existence. So, Yeah, that's 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 real important. And the law, which Genesis is considered the law, too, the law testifies of that. So that's a, a great point. Good point. Um, let, me, let me throw you another question there, Paul. Let me give you one that... Uh, Maybe it's easy, maybe it's not. Verse 23 is often quoted, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Contextually, of Romans 3, who is all here? Well, that's a good qualifier there. I think it is true, and it is a true statement that we would realize when we realize what Paul is teaching here, for us to say that all people from all nations uh, are uh, have sinned and that we have disappointed God and that we fall short of his glory. But contextually, the very specific application of this passage is that he's talking to the Jews uh, and the Gentiles. The, Gen the Jews probably would not have had much trouble identifying the fact that those Gentiles were sinners and that they have fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul would here make the point that all, both Jews and Gentiles, uh, children of Abraham uh, that would trace their lineage back through Isaac, uh, those who might trace their lineage back through Ishmael uh, and uh, all others, uh, would be able to uh, realize that all of those have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That uh, That's a great answer. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. Let me ask a couple of questions real quick on um, on our uh, 
just on some of the words that we're using here. So we have a statement as we're going through here in verse 24 that we're justified freely by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, Shelton, how would you define the word redemption? Well, um, as far as the definition of the word, uh, Strong's has it as, you know, a parallel word to deliverance or a ransom that has been paid in full. Uh, and, and I understand where we get that kind of idea if we look at us as Christians being bond servants, uh, meaning we have a debt that we cannot repay. Uh, and then, of course, in that culture, if you had a debt that you could not pay, then you would uh, work for whoever you were indebted to uh, until that you know, has been paid off. And that's, that's what we are as Christians. We have a debt that we cannot pay because of the redemption of our sins through Christ. Uh, and so we work for him. Uh, we serve him because of that. However, if you want to look at, you know, maybe a man-made definition of this, Oxford Dictionary, well, Strong's is man-made too, but Oxford Dictionary says the action of saving or being saved from an error or from an evil. Uh, I think this corresponds with Scripture, what we have here in another parallel passage to this being Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, where it says, In him, meaning Christ, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. That's what redemption is. Redemption is the forgiveness of our sins according to the grace of Christ and uh, and the grace of God, and it comes through his blood. I think that's the most full understanding of redemption we can find. It's, it's, the, it's the removal or the forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Christ, and it, and it definitely... Um, and it definitely involves his grace. We are undeserving of that. That's a great answer. Thank you very much, Shelton. Um, uh, certainly, I uh, uh, appreciate your reference uh, to the scriptural ideas there, too. Uh, along that same idea, another word is thrown up here, and this is probably one of the least commonly used words outside of the Bible. In other words, we might use justification or redemption uh, as words outside of uh, a biblical meaning, but the word propitiation, uh, I've never used in my life beyond the, the talking about scriptures. So I think I'm going to drop that over to Tom. Tom, uh, would you tell us what does the word propitiation mean? Uh, simply uh, appeasement or satisfaction. The, the idea is uh, uh, God is satisfied to accept this for the guilt of our sins, which is the ultimate point. Uh, if I understand correctly, the word is also associated with the idea of the mercy seat. Uh, the mercy seat was associated with the children of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant. It was it was seated above the Ark of the Covenant, or it was descriptive of that area. And uh, that was the place where the high priest once a year would go through the tent and meet with God with blood that was shed uh, to appease God for another year for the sins that the children of Israel had committed. And... Uh, and, and so that's the ultimate point is Jesus, through his sacrifice, made forgiveness possible for us, made it possible for us to be righteous with God, even though we are unrighteous in our conduct. And there's no way that we can earn that uh, uh, because we are going to sin, even though we don't have to sin. Tom, you said something important that we're, the next couple of questions kind of reference to as well, the next things to think about. You said that the propitiation in the Old Testament and by Christ were accomplished by what 
what thing? Do you remember what you said there a second ago? Uh, well, I talked about the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the and blood, what was put on the blood, Ark of the Covenant? Blood that was shed for the sins blood. of the people. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the Hebrew writer would say it succinctly when he says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Propitiation right. has to be accomplished by the shedding of blood. Now, I kind of wonder what he might mean here whenever in verse 25, he's talking about this propitiation by blood. And then he uses this term that because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins which were previously committed. John, when you hear that term passed over sins, what uh, what what idea, what Old Testament uh, event comes to your mind? Are we looking for Passover? Passover, yeah. <laughs> what uh, what was God looking for to pass over? Well, in that specific case in point, he was looking for the blood of the lamb that was offered to be spread over the doorposts and the mantle of the house. And when the, the angel would see that, the angel would pass over. And um, in that case of point, would not strike dead the firstborn of the family. So so we kind of get a great example then from the Old Testament uh, uh, that the idea of propitiation passing over by the sacrifice of blood. So that in that yeah. sense, do you have any other thoughts about that, John? Well, that seems to be, and I think one of you may have mentioned it just a second ago, that seems to be the common practice established within the law of Moses. Um, think about the number of times the, the blood of the sacrifices was sprinkled onto the the tent, the, um, not tent, the curtain, you know, that was, that was suspended there. I had someone made the point one time, can you imagine what that would have smelled like through all the hundreds of years, you know, of, of that being done and everything? And so as a result, um, it was kind of symbolic of the Lord not striking the people dead, forgiving them of the trespasses. Now that opens up a whole other discussion, obviously, about the forgiveness of those sins. But when they offered a trespass offering, sin offering, guilt offering, whatever it was, they believed that, the God, that God did forgive them at that moment. And as far as God was concerned, their trespass was forgiven them. That continues then to the blood of Christ being shed upon the cross and hence that idea of, of uh, God passing over our sins because of the blood of Christ, as long as we're willing to be under that blood of Christ following that same type, anti-type imagery there. It's, a, it's an excellent, uh, excellent observation there. Um, in this same thread of thought, as he's talking about this idea of the propitiation sacrifice accomplished through blood, he then makes this declaration about the nature of God. He says, God... Uh, can be both just, this is verse 26, he is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith, uh, which is really a, a dramatic statement. Exactly what is that? Paul, I'm going to ask you, exactly what does it mean when he says this? Uh, how is God both just and a justifier of us? Well, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to provide the answer exactly as you're looking for it, but um I'll, I'll tell you what my thoughts are here. God is inherently just. That's part of his character. Uh, it's, it's impossible for him to be unjust, uh, that he is uh, right and he is innocent and he is perfect. Uh, but we are not. Uh, and so whether Jew or Gentile, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we need someone to make us just. And so God in his very nature is just. But he wants us to be like him, and so we need forgiveness. We need justification, and so he is the justifier. So what's interesting is uh, we might go into this, too, to say the idea that God is just because he isn't waiving the penalty of sin, uh, because the propitiation or the satisfaction of that wrath is accomplished, but it's simply accomplished through his son, 
making them also the justifier too. So that's exactly exactly what I was looking for there, Paul. Thanks. Um, and let's go to one more question. Uh, let's uh, maybe throw this one out to Shelton. So Shelton, if faith is apart from the law, and we want to kind of reconcile this idea, how is it that faith doesn't make the law void? And, and maybe Shelton, even to say, how is law necessary for faith to exist even? Uh, and like I said, that, that might be a drawn out question, but Shelton, what do you think about this idea? That's a great question, Brian. I think the answer is found uh, in Paul's writing in Galatians. I think he makes this point clear. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, it says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And so with this, the point that he makes to them here is that not that the law was void in any way or is void now in any way as far as it means nothing. And now that our faith, you know, is here, we don't need it anymore and, and, and it was useless. That's not the point. And so when we look at our faith not making the law void, as the statement is here in Romans 3, I think that's exactly the point. The law was the tutor that was going to bring us to Christ. And it says that we might be justified by faith without that law we wouldn't have been able to be justified by faith. Uh, and so now that we are, we are no longer under this tutor anymore. And, and it kind of leads us there. And I think what he's talking about here is when we look at the writings of the old law, they did lead to the Messiah. Uh, as we talked about earlier in Luke 24, Jesus makes that point uh, clear that the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they all spoke of the Messiah to come. And when we look at that law, and we read that law, of course, for them, it was the tutor that prepared them for that. But we in our lifetime have had both simultaneously. Uh, and so when we read of those things and then we read in the new covenant and see in Jesus's life that these things have been fulfilled, uh, you know, we are able to have that faith in him as the son of God. Uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't think that Jesus Christ was the son of God unless he uh, fulfilled all the prophecies in the Old Testament about uh, about the Messiah to come, about the Son of God who was going to come, even in his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, fulfilled all of those prophecies. So I think that's that's the point that's being made there. That's not made void because we have faith. That's what allows us to have faith. That's a fantastic uh, observation. I really appreciate you going back to Galatians 3, which we had uh, surreptitiously, you know, or uh, uh, maybe, uh, you know, providentially read earlier. So it really kind of helped us out in understanding that idea. Um, is there any sense where too, maybe even the, you got me to thinking about this, the law of Christ today, the law we're under now is, you know, how, how does that relate to faith? Uh, you know, maybe uh, what I was thinking of in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, what's the connection of law and faith there? Well, without the law and without the reading of it or hearing of it, we can't have faith. You can't have faith in something that you don't know. That's, you at least that's have it. to know. Yeah, that, as you were saying that, it, it occurred to me that was exactly what the kind of the direction we're heading. That the law of Christ is one that requires faith. In fact, it is the law of faith that is probably mentioned here at verse twenty-seven. So, uh, well done, Shelton. Well done. Um, so then, as we kind of bring this thought to a close, let's go back to the chat room and let's get the answer from Mike first. Mike, you've given us a couple of answers, and I'm sorry, Mike. For some reason, I can't see him. And uh, I apologize that you've given us a couple of answers here, but I think you've answered this chat question, and I'm going to have to have somebody else read that for me. All right. So the, the chat question was, why was the law necessary if God did not desire men to be made righteous by it? Mike says the following. 
it is a schoolmates to is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Had we not known the law, we would not know sin. From this learning, we come to know Christ by keeping His commandments. Um, now that's Micah's Mike's first comment, and then we have one from Gregor. Do me bring that in? Yeah, go ahead. Please. Okay, then then we'll go back to Mike's second one. Gregor says Jesus demonstrates this in Matthew twenty-two. The law was instruction, guiding us to learn what God values. And then the second one by Mike, he says, Notice that none of these rewards, such as grace or redemption or other blessings, are received outside of Christ. The passage and uh, the passage in verse, uh, the passage twenty at verse twenty-four says, "Grace which is in Christ Jesus." Galatians three twenty-seven is the only means by which one enters Jesus Christ. That's a great, great comment there, Mike. Thanks for both of those, and Gregor, thank you too for. Uh, uh, kind of coming back to this, uh, and Jesus is talking about the instruction of what God values. So that brings our study in chapter three to a close. Let's kind of, does anybody have any closing comments or observations to make about chapter three? Yeah, uh, just real quick. Uh, Romans chapter three basically sets up the next seven to 10 chapters of this book. So, uh, so I mean, it's an important chapter because Paul's going to develop a lot of these things in more detail. All these terms that we talked about and kind of briefly de defined, many of them are going to be dealt with in the, in the coming chapter. So it's, it's important uh, from that standpoint. Uh, so uh, well, I'll just leave that at there. There's other thoughts that I have, but we're out of time. So. That's a that's an important point, John uh, or Tom. That uh, we're now set up for what we're moving ahead to understand, and glad we were able to define these terms. Anybody else have anything to add? I don't think there's too much to add, Brian. I think you did an excellent job. Let we'll turn it back over to John then, and have John wrap us up. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you leading us through our study today. Uh, you did a fine job with that, and appreciate everyone's comments and participation, and we appreciate your interest. I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today for this Bible study. Um, as we go through this, we'll, we'll, we will understand even better Paul's usage of the term law and contrast it with faith. The people of the Old Testament had to have faith in God. I mean, Paul makes that point several times, but they also had to abide by the law that God had given them. And the law itself was not a bad thing until the people transgressed it and went against God. And had they had faith, they would not have gone through the process of transgressing the law of God. And so we'll, we'll understand a lot more about the true faith as we get on into chapter 4, as was already forementioned four earlier by Tom, I think it was. Brian, again, you did a wonderful job. I appreciate it very much. Um, any other thoughts or comments before we pull our study to a close by anyone all righty, so we'll continue our study through Romans, and we are going through a study through Romans, just as the nice, pretty, golden graphic says there. And that's what we're looking at now. Next week will be Chapter 4, and that'll be Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. Noon in the Eastern Time Zone. 9 a.m. Pacific Time. And 10 a.m. Mountain Time. That's right here at Live dot truthfactor dot com. Have a wonderful week.